0: Hey there, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host Chris Desmond. This is the podcast all about getting out of your comfort zone. Some days we do that through people telling us how they've got out of their comfort zone. Sometimes it's through having conversation about uncomfortable topics. Today has some of both for us. A little while ago, I had the honour of being able to sit down and have a conversation with Simone Butler. Now, Simone's name may be familiar to some of you listening. In 2003, Simone Butler's violent partner, Anthony Dixon, high on methamphetamine, cut off both her hands with a samurai sword. Her hands were reattached in a groundbreaking marathon surgery and she spent the next decade healing her mind, body, and spirit. Simone has just released her book, Double-Edged Sword, which we chat about today. Double-Edged Sword is so much more than just a story of survival. It's a guidebook for humanity, how to shrug off the oppressors and the obstacles, and live your life with the greatest intensity you can muster. It's about conquering the demons and rising like a phoenix from the ashes and learning how to live with passion, honesty and love. Simone was an absolute gem to speak with. She answered all the questions open and honestly. I have to admit that I was a little bit nervous chatting to Simone after all that she'd been through just because I wasn't quite sure if I could do her story justice. I'm not sure that I did, but thankfully she's so great at telling it that hopefully it doesn't matter. I just want to let you know that this podcast does contain coarse language and some pretty heavy conversation in parts, so it might be a tough listen for you, but I think it's well worthwhile. I just want to say thanks to all of you for listening, especially if you've listened to the majority of podcasts. It's been fantastic to make them so far this year and I've got to c- talk to some really really cool people all of who have interesting stories to share. I hope you have a great rest of 2016 and I look forward to catching up with you again next year. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me and Simon today. Hey, Simon, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. It's cool to sit down and have a chat with you this morning.
1: Thank you, Chris. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Excellent. Um, so, Simon, today we're having a bit of a chat about your book, Double-Edged Sword, and also your, your life as well. So I think there's probably a lot of people out there in New Zealand who know, know your name, Based on uh, what you what you went through, but for the people that don't, and also to kind of give everyone else a little bit more um, insight into you and to, into the backstory, can you tell me and tell the listeners um, a, a bit about yourself about growing up?
1: Okay. Um, well, I was um, I was born in Odaho in Middlemore Hospital um, in 1975, and um, just before I was two my mother moved to Whangaparaa um, and I lived there till I was 11 so that was it was in a way it was completely idyllic like I grew up you know a hundred meters from the beach and um, and just had like a really awesome sort of beachy childhood um, mixed in with that there um, there were lots of adults in my life it was sort of my mum says that I was born in the middle of her hippie trippy phase. <laughs> so there were lots of sort of out of it al- al- um, out of it adults in my life um, when I was quite young and so that just seemed normal you know and they most of them were actually really lovely and I had a really great time um, my mum did have a violent boyfriend um, from the time I was about seven or eight until I was 10 or 11 when she finally left him and um, and so with that that was it was really stressful for me and I don't when I look back I don't feel like I lived in a really violent place, but writing this book um it brought up some of the um some of the incidents, and I went oh okay, right, so that that wasn't normal um but yeah, my mum was in a violent relationship with a man, and he there were times when she told me to call the police and he would go completely off the handle and um and you know throw me into a wall or threw me away um, from the phone. At one stage I was holding the phone and he threw me and the phone, phone across the room um, and it was drilled into me that under no circumstances do you ever call the police, do you never bring them to their heart, to your home. And also um, besides that my mother had grown up in an abusive family relationship as well with um, in her childhood and so in her teen years and so she was also told you know you don't talk about what goes on behind closed doors. So this for both of us, was, you know, was something that we kept to ourselves. We didn't go out and advertise to people that there was violence in our home. Um, and so when I grow up, and also I was as a, you know, my, my one of my other stepdads, um, who I call my bad dad in the book, he used to grow weed everywhere and stuff. And, um, and so, you know, like I knew I had it ingrained in me from a very young age that a narc is the worst thing that you could ever be. And, you know, and I didn't want to do that. So that, you know, all of those little things stuck with me. So later on when I met Tony and um, and I was 22 when I met him and um, and he was very persuasive but also funny and charming and he, he wore me down because he was so persistent and persuasive over a period of a year. Um, and there were always warning signs. And some of them I I, I did... Sort of, I tried to take heed of, but because he was so persistent and he insinuated in his li- in my himself in my life so much, I um I couldn't really take heed of them the way that I needed to, um, and then all of a sudden, sort of the warning bells just stopped because I wasn't paying attention to them anyway. Mm. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Thanks for that. I, I I think you made a couple of really interesting points there, and uh, I mean, I think as as people, it's amazing what we can kind of get used to and, and uh, think is normal um, yes. in, in that, situa- that situation, kind of how that yeah. that cycle just perpetuates yeah. that if you're...
1: It does. And in New Zealand, like, we, we have a, a hideous um, family violence and intimate partner violence culture here. And so if you're a young girl um, growing up and your mum's being beaten up and your brother's beating up his wife and your cousins are being beaten up. You know, like that is their normal. Um, and so then when they go out into a relationship and they start getting beaten up, they're like, well, that, that's just what life is like. Um, you know, and a lot of it is education and a lot of it is, is getting these, these kids when they're young enough to be able to start dealing with them um, and teaching them, you know, non-violent conflict resolution and teaching them how to manage their anxieties and manage their emotions um, in a productive way so that when they grow older, they don't end up in violent relationships or being violent.
0: There's a couple of things from that. The first probably is, are there any... Sorry, why do you think that... That culture is so prevalent in, in New Zealand. I mean, it's not. It's definitely getting talked about more now than it than it used to. But still, I
1: mean, I mean, I, some, I think it's prevalent all through the all around the world. But in New Zealand, um, I mean, I guess we we have a lot of British culture that is that has come through. Like my mother was an immigrant. She came over when she was twelve, um, and. The culture that she grew up in was, you know, the first, for the first little while was, was in Britain and that was, you don't talk about what goes on behind closed doors, you know, and, and back then it wasn't illegal to beat your wife. I mean, it's only been illegal in New Zealand to rape your wife since the early 80s. Um, you know, women have only been allowed to own property since the 20th century. Um, this is, you know, like the culture that we're in has been a culture of oppressing women. Um, and having women as possessions for the last few thousand years, um, and it's just it seems to have just come out in New Zealand, and possibly it's because we do have um, a, you know a big issue with alcohol. Later, you know, obviously we've had issues with methamphetamine and other drugs as well, and I think um, I think that has a lot to do with it.
0: Mm. Are there things out there at the moment or educational programs out there at the moment that are, in, in your opinion, are really focused and really good at helping change that culture?
1: Yeah, there are. Um, Women's Refuge have, um, have programs um, going on in the community. So does SHINE um, and HELP. Um, RPE, which is Rape Prevention Education, they go into schools and help to teach consent and, but not just consent, also healthy relationships in general, you know, empowered relating. Um, and, it's, and if we can get these kids when they're still um, in their adolescent phase before they've actually started these serious relationships and we, if we can get them talking about this um, openly and honestly, I think that we, we really do have a, have a really good chance at making a difference for the next generations.
0: Cool that's that's awesome someone if we if we move on a little bit, you started talking about tony and and going into a relationship with him earlier, can you give us a bit more insight into your relationship with tony
1: um yeah absolutely, so to start with um He he pursued me for six or seven months before I agreed to go out with him. Um, I didn't realize at the time I was being stalked, but he would turn up at gas stations and at dairies and outside my friend's houses. And in fact, in 1997, I lived in five different houses and he found me at every single one of them. But I, again, I just thought it was all magical coincidences. I had no idea that I was being targeted um, by him. And... He, in the beginning, when once I finally agreed to start going out with him, um he was very charming and very funny, and I'd heard all sorts of ridiculous rumours about him and things, but they didn't they didn't chime with the person that was in front of me, you know, being really kind and really generous and really funny and and really loving. and he was ridiculously affectionate, like i um by the time I was twenty two, I'd sort of had a bit of a rough ride with regard to my self-esteem and I, um, and my self-worth. And I really did feel like a worthless piece of shit that nobody liked. And um, and although I had amazing friends and I did have nice family, I was, you know, like I just I just had no self-worth and it had been chipped away through various things over the years. And so when this man came along that was so into me and more into me than anyone had ever been and so affectionate, like I'd never you know, met a man that wanted so many kisses and cuddles and wanted to hold my hand everywhere we went and stuff and I completely got swept away in it. And then um you know, over then he actually went away to prison because of um he got some driving while well disqualified charges and they put him away for a few months. And so during that time we broke up and we got back together and we broke up and we got back together and I had indications of his controlling nature then because we would have arguments on the phone. Um, but that was sort of easy to deal with because he was in prison and I'd just hang up and it'd all be fine. Um, but then when he got out, um, and I didn't realize then that he'd he'd got a taste for drugs while he was in prison and it was a, another year or so later before I would figure that out. But um, when he got out, he um, he was a little bit, to start with, he was just a little bit more controlling and stuff because and everything was very subtle. It was all you know, just either chipping away at my self-esteem on one level and then building me up on another level. Um, you know, I was the most amazing woman in the world. I was the best person in the world. I was the best person he'd ever been out with. He'd never had a girl with a job before, you know, and he was just always going on and on and on about how amazing I was. On the other side of it, he'd chip away at my self-esteem with telling me that I was useless or that I was too slow or that I couldn't do anything right. And um, And by this stage, I was um once I was in the relationship and I was completely in love and head over heels and all very messed up. Um, I was very desperate to be a um a good wife slash girlfriend and and very desperate to, to create this sort of loving family unit that I um that I didn't feel that I had. And because he was so into me there was this real sense of belonging that came with that. And so I ran with that. And then when he started to become violent, well, the first time he was violent with me, it was, it was extreme violence. It was probably 20 minutes of being bashed in the head with left jabs continuously. I was slipping in and out of consciousness. And he started, and at that moment, he threatened, um, my family and my friends and strangers that just happened to be on the sidewalk where, close to where we were. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't want to drag anybody else into this. I don't want anyone else to get, to get harmed because of this. And then of course afterwards he was so sorry and he would never do it again and it was extenuating circumstances and he loved me so much and he just got stressed because he thought he was going to lose me because I'd actually said I wanted to break up. And I, I actually, and it took me another year or so before I realised that that was the catalyst, um, for, that I couldn't just sit down with him and say, hey, this isn't working and I think that we should part our ways. Um, because every time I did that, I would get smashed in the head. But it, again, I wasn't putting that together. And so it took me a while to realize that I couldn't actually say that. And if I was going to have to go, I would have to um, run away in the night. And I tried a few times, um, but I always ended up coming back for whatever reason.
0: Well, that's it's pretty powerful. So it just, it, again, it's it's kind of that, that cyclical nature of the good times and interspersed with yeah. the bad times, yeah, and the
1: good times. The good times were amazing, and so that you know, so I would think, oh my gosh, am I crazy? Like, did that violence even happen? Because sometimes, uh, so after the first massive of violent incidents. You know, it may have been a month or two months before the next thing happened, and they, you know, and it could just be three minutes worth of violence, and then I'd be, you know, I'd have black eyes and things, but I'd be like, oh my goodness, did that even happen? Because then he would be so loving and so kind and so generous, and of course crying and, you know, begging me to stay and telling me how much he loved me, and that, you know, and then he would go on and on and on about his childhood, and and I would feel guilty for making him, you know, have to relive those memories, and then somehow it would all get turned around on me that it was all my fault and he he had a very persuasive, almost um brainwashing quality to him and because he was constantly in my head and in my ear, it you know, it, it worked and I'm I'm very I'm very sensitive and I'm very intuitive and um and um and I have empath empath skills, empathetic skills. And um and so it's, you know, it really, it's like it wipes me out and it just, and all of a sudden it was just sort of like his version of me that he wanted was left. Mm. It's all very twisted and crazy and, and messy, but I took on board a lot of his stuff um, and then also he somehow managed to make me feel completely responsible for him, like it was my job to make him happy and my job to actually protect him from the world, Um And I'm not quite sure how that happened. I've always been a rescuer. I mean, not so much now. Now I only put my time and energy into people that actually are going to work hard to get themselves well. But even growing up, um, I was always someone that was there to fix everyone else's stuff. I was the one that would rescue people. I wanted to help people and I wanted to make everything better. And, um, and so then when I ended up in this, in this terrible relationship, I still had this, obsessive need to try and create the perfect family and make everything better and and take on everyone else's crap um you know take responsibility for what everybody else did and then and then that sort of got me stuck because I felt responsible for everything
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and I think I mean I'm hearing there as well as that feeling of responsibility is uh, part of the reason that you you did get stuck there and kind of kept kept in that relationship and kept coming back because yeah, you felt responsible.
1: It for It tiny bit. and yeah and like I've and um and I felt a certain level of responsibility to the world, to, and to my friends and family to keep him away from them. And I felt because I had no worth for myself that I didn't actually matter, and so I could and I knew that by then I knew that I could take the punches. You know, um. And and I knew that I that I would that I would live through it, sort of thing. And I thought that by me staying there, I was protecting everyone else from having to deal with him. Um, And I may and I made him out to be way more. I gave him all of my power, and then I made him out to be like a thousand more times powerful than he was in my mind because I didn't talk to anybody. You know, the second I had if I had of. Gone to someone and told somebody what was happening, or gone to the police or something. All of his power would have been gone, but I didn't understand that at that stage. Yeah, I didn't. I had I had no clue how to get myself out.
0: Mm. Were there people that were trying to help you as well during that time? That kind of saw some of um, these signs.
1: Yes and no. There were like I when when I um, when I ran away, I ran away to one of my cousin's houses, and and she was doing her best. to to help me and support me Um, but you know she had children and things and I didn't want to bring um, trouble to her house he already knew where she lived um, and so that was that was really stressful Um, there I mean most the majority of his friends witnessed violence towards me at some stage and nobody said anything or did anything there was nobody that was really saying hey you know, don't do that, um, except for his ex-wife who would totally give him his face and, you know, and, and tell him off for it and tell him to stop and, and things. But she wasn't, but she never extended an arm to me and said, hey, you need to get out of this. Do you want me to help? I'll show you, know, I've done it before. Um, so nobody was actually offering help. I wasn't asking anybody for help, but there wasn't anybody, like I didn't feel like I had anybody on my side to do it. Um, and as I said, I was, I was raised that you don't go to the police no matter what, um, and that under no circumstances you bring the police to your door. So that wasn't even an option, like it never even occurred to me that I could call the police.
0: Yeah. And in your experience, uh, Simone, is that kind of a, a typical story of uh, someone in an abusive relationship or a domestic violent relationship within New Zealand?
1: Where they feel stuck and where they feel they have nowhere to turn and that they mm-hmm. have no help. Yeah. Absolutely. It's estimated that only 18% of family and domestic violence is reported in this country. Wow. That's. Yeah, incredible. so that's not even 20% is reported. Um, you know, and, and as for sexual violence, like I think it's only something like 7% of sexual violence is reported. I mean, I could be wrong with those statistics, but it's, it's very, very low. And because we do have a victim shaming and a victim blaming culture, um, I, you know, I, until we can change the culture and start putting the onus on the perpetrators and taking it away from the victim, why didn't she leave? You know, why did she do this? Why did she let him do that to her? What was she wearing when she got raped? Why was she in a, in a car park in the middle of the night? You know, until we stop blaming the victims for what happens and start blaming the perpetrators and putting the guilt and the responsibility where it belongs, people aren't going to come forward. You know, if you get met with contempt and um, and judgment, well, we're already contemptuous of ourselves and we're already full of judgments. You know, we don't need it from other people. And um, and I think that that's a big reason that people don't report stuff. And also, it's embarrassing. You know, I was horrified at thought of anybody finding out that I was being beaten up. I was, you know, like, it's, it yeah, it was, it was, It was so shameful to me and then, of course, even more shameful for the fact that it had happened and then I had stayed, you know, because I had believed his promises that he would never do it again and that he loved me so much and it was only because he was scared of losing me or, you know, I'd get the, look what you made me do, you know what I'm like um, sort of thing. And again, you know, so all of a sudden all that responsibility is put on me. It's my fault that I just got smacked in the head with a piece of wood. Yeah, mm, exactly. We only put a few incidents of violence in the book because there's only so much that you can, you know, that you can tell in three hundred pages. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot more violence in my um, in my life that that didn't make the book, just either because I couldn't remember the exact details of it, or because, you know, we just sort of had to um, had to streamline it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, I think that. From reading your book, there is still a lot of a lot of violence in there, and if that's only part of it, then
1: yeah, the, I that, mean, the mind that's just a boggles. Tiny, tiny tip of the of the iceberg, because I was possibly, um, you know, being involved in in violence, being beaten up um, in one way or another, probably every six weeks, um, which then would have increased to or, to weekly. Um, at some stages, and then um, and then later on in the relationship there were times when I didn't see him um, for a few weeks at a time, so then of course the violence lessened then because he wasn't around. But when he was, um, he was very volatile.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean I think that your book, um, I want to, th- it's not something that is probably enjoy is the wrong word. Um, in regards know, to the story keep, but when people
1: are like I've got your book and I, and I, go, I keep going around oh enjoy it I'm like hmm you're probably not going to enjoy it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, good luck I think um, it's, get yeah, some shoes
0: yeah yeah I mean it's it's a very as we were saying before it's a very tough read in parts but also it's just so hard to put down um and that it's it's very very well put together it's very well told and it's really Thank you. We, we
1: worked so hard to, um, to make it a really easy. Because the content is so hardcore, we spent so long trying to make it into really easy-to-read language, and we tried to make it flow and not be disjointed so that because it was so, um, so heavy in places that you could just flow through it. And we tried really hard not to get stuck in the details as well and you know to because we didn't want people to um to sort of wander off or they were reading it and go oh no it was, you know too hard because yeah. the stuff was hard so we tried to make the language very easily and un- un- very easy to understand and also i wanted we wanted to tell it in a way or show it in a way that um that this could happen to anybody you know i was educated i was independent um I'd been fighting bullies my entire life and standing up to them. But when it was me, for some reason, I, I just didn't have any gumption left. And I mean, I was still standing up for myself. Don't get me wrong. Like I was still very much, um, you know, standing up for myself in the relationship, but I wasn't standing up for myself enough to get out of the relationship. You know, I wasn't taking the stand that I needed um, because I was too scared. And I mean, he would he'd threatened to slit my grandparents' throat in the night and burn down their house. And even though I knew it was sort of an empty threat, I knew that he was sadistic enough to do it. So, you know, and that's drugs or no drugs. Because he's very, he was very, very vindictive. Um, and so, you know, those things in the back of my mind kept me where I was.
0: Mm, yeah, and I think that as well as being a... a- a compelling read. Um, I think it's such an important story to to get out there as uh, just as as an example to uh, other people that may be going through this. Uh, yeah, to know that that they're, they're not alone. It's and,
1: yeah, and that's really what I wanted to show them as well as that they're not alone. You know, they may feel alone, they may feel like nobody else cares about them, but we do care about them, and they're not alone. And there are um there are places and people that will go the extra mile to keep them safe and get them out of the relationships that they are in or help them to get out of the relationships they are in
0: Simon I want to just kind of briefly touch on sort of the the culmination of this uh relationship um because yep, i the mean the attack. reason yeah the the reason that most people probably know your name is is because of the attack. Could yeah. you kind of just give us a a, a brief overview of a that overview. and then, then we'll jump into your recovery?
1: Okay. So, um I came home um one day in January um and he was acting more crazy than normal and um I'd actually gone off to pick up his uh, one of his friends who was a mechanic because Tony had pulled all of the dashes out of all of our cars because he thought that people were surveilling him and that there were bugs in them, like by the stage he was off the planet paranoid and, and he'd always been very paranoid but this was just cray cray and so then um, so I came home and there was one of my friends was in the house as well and he'd had an altercation with her earlier in the day and smacked her in the head with a hammer and he started yelling abuse at us and I jumped up in, in between them to try and figure out, you know, try and calm him down and see what was going on and where this was all coming from. And at some stage he grabbed a sword and tried to chop our heads off. So we were, um, both of us fighting for our lives, um, for trying to protect our heads by putting our hands up. Um, and so the sword was coming at our heads and at our neck and our hands were up as you can imagine in a defensive position and, my um my left hand came off um and I caught it. There was a um a piece of skin between the hand and my arm, which I was lucky not to break um, which sort of which kept my hand sort of together, and then my right hand was severed through the middle of the palm um, um vertically, and then it was off at the forearm and then off at the elbow as well. And um, and he just, he would have, um, he told the police that he would have kept going until we were dead except for the sword broke on my friend's head. Um, and our other friend, my other friend, his friend that was there, um, the mechanic, he managed to get him away from us and um, it was like the whole time, come on, Tony, come on, Tony, leave the girls alone, come on, come on. And so he, um, he left and he left us lying, um, dying in pools of our own blood and then, um, because he was always sorry after something, after he'd done something, he rang an ambulance, and or called the ambulance, and said that a builder had fallen off a three-story roof and was building, uh, bleeding profusely, and that they needed to send the helicopter. Um, they sent a little doctor from Natia, who just came in a, upon this bloodbath, and then called the helicopter. And, and so it's the first, it was the doctor that came on the scene, and the first paramedics that... Um, That really saved our lives to begin with because they, they did the right things and everything that was, that was needed to be done then, um, was done so that we could be secured and sent off to hospital in the chopper. And then once I got to hospital, and obviously I don't remember any of this, um, I was in surgery for 27 and a half hours, and they did what's called a bilateral replantation, which means they replanted both of my hands. It was an operation that had never been done anywhere in the world before, um, so it was completely experimental, and I was lucky enough to have some of the best hand surgeons in the world, just happened to be at Middlemore so that was really lucky and um, one of the surgeons had actually already um, resigned and was moving to England but she came in especially to help put me back together um, because she hadn't left the country yet and, um, and then I spent um, 11 weeks in hospital I think after that initial one so I couldn't do anything for myself. I, um, I had to be bathed, I had to be toileted, I had to be fed and um, and all up, and then I continued to have operations for the next uh, six years, um, and oh, five years, I think, five years, because the, the last operation I had was because I danced backwards off a deck. Um, <laughs> so that one doesn't really count, but I did break my wrist, and they did um, fix it. Um, yeah, and so it was it was a really... Long and slow recovery period. Um, I was in and out of hospital, so I've had twelve. I had twelve general anaesthetic surgeries of over hundred procedures um, to help put me back together. They took bone out of my hips um, to put into my left arm because there was. They think they. Well, the surgeons told me that it took about six or seven weeks to actually take my um, my left hand off, and so not only was it um you know all the tendons and the and the nerves and the blood vessels and the arteries severed um my bones had been crushed and some of them were um irreparable so they put um bone grafts back in to try and um to try and put my bones back together I had nerve grafts from my feet um vein grafts from my feet and my legs um tendon grafts from my legs and skin grafts from my thigh so um They pretty much took parts from everywhere to try and put me back together, which I'm very grateful for because they did an amazing job. Um, And in the beginning, when I first got out of hospital, actually for the first two years I had physio for an hour a day, five days a week and I would have to take painkillers before I went to physio because of the excruciating pain of the moving even though it was all passive movement Um, and I would actually pass out so they'd take me to the back room and I would lie down and they would do all of the stuff and I'd pass out and I'd wake up every now and then if there was pain or if they needed to ask me a question and then I'd pass out again and then I'd go home and you know rinse and repeat. Um, and so that was pretty much my whole life for the first two years was just going to physio and and also I'd, when I woke up out of my coma and found out they'd sewn my hands back on, like I was just amazed. I didn't know that that was even possible and for the first day or so that I'd woken up, I didn't know that I had hands because I had an aspirator and I couldn't talk to people, I couldn't ask questions. And my hands were in these giant bandages, so they looked really short and stubby, or rather my arms were in these giant bandages. And so I didn't think that, I didn't know that they'd sewn me back together. So when I found out that I had been put back together, I was absolutely in awe, and I felt like it was my duty now to do everything I could to get my hands working as best as I could. One, to think, um the surgeons and all of the um, and all of the staff that were involved in my recovery, but two, you know, it was like a second chance. And because they, they told me I would get no use of my left hand and possibly thirty to fifty percent of my right hand. And I was like, oh, we'll be back on. I think I'll get more, and I have. Um, and like my to this day, like my surgeons and my physios are absolutely astounded at how well um, I've managed to um, to rehabilitate myself after the work that they did.
0: And I mean, speaking from a, from a physiotherapy point of view, I mean, obviously there's a, a, there's been a lot of work that has happened on you from, from health professionals, all yeah. of it, which sounds amazing, but there is so much work that you have to put in as well yeah Um,
1: it is because it's attitude attitude is everything if you're like oh this fucking sucks and why me and the world sucks and this is you know this isn't even my fault well then you're not going to heal you know you have to go okay this happened and it really sucks but now I have this opportunity to um to fix myself as best as I can so I'm going to do it um and because it is hard work and it is you know, and it's frustrating, you know, I've, being trapped in your own body, not being able to do anything, and like I ended up putting on 22 kilos, and, um, you know, and so it was like this body wasn't even mine, this like useless lump of a body that didn't work, but I had to work through all of that mentally and emotionally because I had to heal, and to do that I had to sort of take charge of um, of every part of my life.
0: Mm, yeah, and I think, I mean, we've definitely touched on the physical side of the recovery there, but yeah, the mental and emotional part as well, and is is really, really important with this. And you've kind of touched on how you how you've approached that, but can you maybe go into a little bit more detail about
1: Absolutely. the stuff that you do to um,
0: to keep yourself well and to heal yourself?
1: Yeah. So, well, for me, the physical was quite easy. I mean, it was very hard and laborious. But the physical was a lot easier than the psychological because it's all laid out in front of you. You know, like, okay, you're going to have this operation, you're going to do physio, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. Um, and this is the result that we're hoping for. Um, but with the emotional and the mental and the psychological healing, there wasn't really a roadmap for that. And, um, and like, I didn't, for the first year, I didn't even deal with the emotional and mental. Like, I, I couldn't. I wasn't. I was completely numb. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very practical by nature, so I just, got into the practical side of it and worked on the physical. And then after a year or so, um, I, I sort of realized, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to start dealing with my mind now. And I was um, lucky enough to, um, to be put on to a shamanic practitioner who specialized in soul retrieval. And so what's hap- what happens is when we experience trauma or grief or loss or or sort of anything that knocks us for six, um, we experience soul loss. So a little bit of ourselves um, may fall away or, or go away for safekeeping. Um, it happens a lot when we're children, um, you know, when if teachers are mean to us or kids are mean to us in the playground and that sort of thing, but it also happens as adults. Um, And you don't have to be in an abusive relationship, you know, um, a violent relationship for this to happen. Like psychological and emotional abuse is just as damaging, um, possibly even more so. And so for me, I started working shamanically with soul retrieval. So calling all of the lost parts of myself home, um, and then after that, I found flower essences and flower essence therapy, and so they are energetic medicine that help to remove the um, the traumatic imprint, if you will. So we can't change what's happened. I can't change my memories, my memories and my memories, but I can take away all of the pain that is associated with those. So now, when I go back and I look at and I you know and I remember, re remember things. The pain and the, and the anguish and the anxiety has been removed and that, um, is largely through flower essences and the flower essences I work with are New Zealand native first light flower essences which are, uh, an amazing and comprehensive range that pretty much cover every single aspect of, um, of human emotion and human, um, human trauma and, um, and sort of every every aspect that we could go through as a human, um, there is a um, a flower essence that can work with that to transform it and heal it.
0: Interesting, yeah, and that's does that uh, make sense? It does make sense, yeah. It's it's definitely okay, not cool. an area that I'm uh, familiar with at all, but uh, no, it's, it sounds cool, and it's. Uh, Obviously, been really helpful for you in terms of yeah, it it really has to the
1: point now that in my healing practice, I although I still use nutrition and herbal medicine and stuff, um, predominantly my healing practice is flower essence therapy and soul retrieval as well. But the um the flower essences like they've I've never come across anything and like and I studied to be a naturopath after all of this happened and um and I've sort of worked through all sort of different modalities of natural therapies and the flower essence therapy and in particular first light flower essences are the most healing and therapeutic tool I've ever come across um in my healing journey. Cool.
0: Very cool. Yeah, they're
1: amazing. Yeah. Someone
0: I wanna I wanna ask you a couple of questions that I, okay. I usually ask people uh, that come on the podcast. Um, so f- first of all, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did, and how did you get through it?
1: Um. Well, actually, yesterday <laughs> um, I rode my horse bareback yesterday um, for the first time in a while, and it was uncomfortable just because I. Um, it had, it had been a while, I've ridden a few, I mean I rode her a few weeks ago when I was planning for, um, when I was preparing for my seven sharp thing, but I, um, every now and then I do lose my confidence with her and I forget that I have all of these amazing skills, so um, so I jumped on my horse and I rode her bareback and my girlfriend actually led me, Like so she was holding onto the, onto the rope for like 100 metres before I actually went, okay, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> So so that was my uncomfortable thing yesterday and then um, with my girlfriend just helping me out for 100 metres and then I was mint, you know, it's like, oh my God, I know this shit. Yeah. But um, but for it was, yeah, it was, and it's, yeah, and she's, um, yeah, my horse is really special and I actually felt like I'd been neglecting her a bit because I've been very, I mean, she's not neglected, but I've been so busy and, um, and the last time I rode her, I rode four horses that day and so there were no time for like snuggles and loves and stuff, yeah. it was just like I was working and we were working and... Um yeah, so yesterday actually I had a um just I had a, a very a very uncomfortable moment when I thought, Oh my god, I don't know how to ride <laughs> and of course I do, but I was I, I was a little bit anxious and so um so my dear friend led me for the first hundred metres until I got my ship together.
0: <laughs> cool. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes you'd need that that help a little bit just to kind of progressively yeah, yeah, build your confidence. Absolutely.
1: And, yes. um, and I mean, I do, I'm also, I mean, there's so many uncomfortable things that are happening at the moment because I've put myself out here now. Mm. You know, like I am, um, I'm part of me is, is quite a private person and, um, as in I like my privacy, like I live in the middle of nowhere surrounded by trees in a driveway that people really can't find, <laughs> um, and, um, you know, and and in another world, maybe i would um I would never talk to another human again, but because of the platform that I have with everything that's happened to me uh, and with this book to be able to take my message to the world, i I have to put myself out here. So I'm talking to media and I'm talking to um to podcasters like yourself and to lots of other um people out there in the world, which is extremely uncomfortable for me, but which I also sort of just go, well, it's a necessary part of what I'm doing, and um, and so I suck it up.
0: Cool. Thank you for that as well.
1: Someone, you're welcome.
0: What's the, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do?
1: Okay, the next uncomfortable thing that I'm going to do. Well, I've got some public speaking engagements coming up, which... Um, I am talking to anti violence prevention um or vi- rather uh violence prevention community groups and um and I, I find public speaking uncomfortable. Like I, I do it quite a lot now, but I still find it extremely uncomfortable. Um and oh and I've got an interview with BBC next week, I don't know, in two weeks, um with the BBC with BBC radio station in, in England, which um is probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable, although the last people that were on it were Metallica in the pick season. So I'm thinking, okay, no, this is going to be good. Um,
0: yeah, awesome. Um, there's someone, I've got uh, I've got two more questions for you. Um, okay. One is easy. The other is a little bit more challenging. Um, but first I want to say thank you very much for your time uh, this morning. Oh, you To S- so sit down and have a chat with me. But also I want to thank you for... Putting your story out there to to be an example to not, not just to yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> not just people who are in um, violent relationships, but also to help the rest of society get an understanding understand. of yeah, yeah of things and, and hopefully I, reach out to help people um, that, that if they see those signs and others. But also, thanks for putting in the time for you in your recovery and kind of showing that no matter kind of what happens to you, you can recover, you can bounce back, um, and you, you just put in so much effort with that, um, and have just shown so much resilience that I think it's, it's amazingly admirable. So thank you for thank that you. too.
1: You're welcome. I'm glad I could do it.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you could too. <laughs> um, so Simone, the the easy question for you. Um, yes. If people want to come and support you or find out more about you, now obviously they should go out and buy the buy the book, double edged sword, um, and buy it to to give as a gift for other people. Um, but whereabouts can they get that? Um, and um, whereabouts get can get it
1: they at my you? website. So it's SimoneButler.co.nz, um, Simone with two N's.
0: Cool. And is there anywhere else that they should uh, kind of jump
1: yes, on um, they're and in Wicksles, they're in Paper Plus. Um, the e-book is now on Amazon, um, and they're in various um, independent bookstores around the country, um, and also at the woman's books, um, woman's bookshop on Ponsonby Road, and they, um, are and Fish It's on fishpond.co.nz, Pond. Um, and. If any bookshop doesn't have it, they will order it in for you. Cool. And Unity Books and Wellingtons um, had um, had quite a lot of success with it as well, I think.
0: Awesome, and I'll put some links in the notes for the show so that people can uh, can f- find that. Um, but awesome. also, you're reasonably active on Facebook and Instagram as oh, well.
1: Yes, yes. Oh, Instagram my absolute favourite um, social media. But yes, so I'm on um, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I have a recalibration healing with Simon Facebook page and a Simon Butler New Zealand author Facebook page. Um, and, yeah, and my website. And I'm just thinking, oh, and I've just joined Goodreads, but I don't actually understand it. <laughs> cool. No I'm not, doubt not the most technological person in the world.
0: <laughs> awesome. Um, Simon, final question for you. Yes. Um, do you have any advice or a message that you'd like to leave us with today?
1: Um, really, for people that are in violent situations, Um, to get out as soon as they can. I mean, I understand that it's very tricky and the most dangerous time for a woman is when she's leaving a a violent relationship. But distance and perspective are the only things that will, you know, you need distance and perspective and you can't get perspective without distance. So reach out for help. If the first person that you ask for help doesn't help you, ask somebody else. You know, don't stop. And also... You know, if and women will identify with this. If you have seen a look in a man's eye and you think, oh, my gosh, he's going to kill me, he is. It may not be today and it may not be tomorrow, but it is going to happen. So get out and keep yourself safe and know that no matter what's happened, you can heal from it. But it's going to take a lot of time and it's going to take other people. You can't do this by yourself. You need help. That, that's my, my big message is you need help and if if you can't get help from the first person then ask somebody else because there will be somebody out there that can help
0: That's a really powerful message to finish on Thanks Simone Thank
1: you You're welcome
0: Thanks again for listening guys I hope you got a lot out of this chat I think as we said before enjoy is probably a strong word uh, but make sure you get out and Get someone's book to have a read. It's incredibly compelling and it's a story that everyone, especially if you're from New Zealand, should read. Again, I just want to thank all of you guys for tuning in and listening, especially if you're coming back week after week. It's been really cool to put out all these podcasts and thank you so much to all of the amazing guests that we've had on so far. We've got a couple of awesome guests lined up to start off 2017 with. Um, first one is Dave Wolf from Everyone's Adventure. So make sure you tune into that podcast next week. Make sure you share this one out as well just to get some on story out to more people. And get people talking about this topic Enjoy the last couple of days of 2016 guys and hopefully 2017 gets off to a great start for you. As always I want to thank my brother Jeremy Desmond for his amazing musical talent and I'll leave you with him.